Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatak along with my sidekick. Sidekick. Shant Kardikian. I'm Shant. Civil Action is a completely free podcast, mostly because we can't charge for it. I don't think anyone charges for podcasts, but okay. Really? No, yeah, you can't charge I for think, it. I think, doesn't Netflix charge for We podcasts? can start running ads on the, on it. Yeah, oh. Would that be good? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. it's an ad-free. It is an ad-free podcast. Podcast. And what we try to do on this is cover recent cases that will affect plaintiffs in their practice. It may be civil procedure. It may be substantive stuff. Uh, it's always interesting to us and to all of our listeners, and we appreciate you listening. Shant Karnikian uh, works with me at our firm, Cabotec LLP. We're a plaintiffs-only firm in downtown Los Angeles, but we cover cases throughout the United States. Shant, what are we going to cover today? So today we're covering three cases, and then we're going to cover a statute. Uh, we're going to talk about invalidating releases and the appealability of an order invalidating releases in a class action. So that's an interesting subject for anyone that practices class actions. Uh, then we're going to talk about the death knell doctrine and uh, appealing an order to dismiss class claims and a cautionary tale there. Then we're going to talk about an interesting Ninth Circuit case um, that has to do with the Phelps factors they're called, and what law applies after an appeal and whether or not you can create um, appellate jurisdiction. And then lastly, we're going to talk about AB9, the um, assembly bill that's about to go into law, I believe, starting in 2020, right? Correct. And if you're listening to this podcast in 2020, it's already law. It is law, if it is 2020. So let's jump right in. Are we ready to jump in, Sean? I think so. Do you have the level of excitement that I have today about our I'm cases? Re- no, no, I don't. Actually, I think these no, are I'm all... I'm very excited. Are- we like doing this. This is actually a lot of fun. Um, you know, and, and we hope it's fun for you to listen to. We learn law and we try to make it interesting, and it's like law school in 25 minutes. So our first case today is Brown versus upside gating. Let's just pause for a moment. What is upside gating? Upside gating. gating. So I, I looked into this. Okay. Uh, upside is this, um, sorry, gating is the street that the property is located. Ah. Upside management is the company that runs the property. And I guess they kind of incorporate all their properties well, as their name, upside, and then whatever street it's on. So if it was on Figaro, it would be upside Figaro. Upside. So upside gating yeah. is a case that involves some landlord tenant issues in a class action, right? Yep. And one of the things that happens in this case is I, I don't really know what the specific allegations of the landlord tenant class action were other than the fact that somewhere along the way the defendants got the bright idea that they were going to go get their tenants to sign releases right I think the the viol- the alleged violations were violations of the rent Sa- stabilization act rent control so they get this idea to go kind around- of irrelevant to our to the case That's but, true. but yeah. this is a typical tactic that a lot of defendants use getting which is releases, to go out yeah. and write and get yeah. releases and it's, so the- it's called pickup sticks because of the case called uh chindara versus pickup sticks so they they pick up sticks to class that's what they so they literally they do. go door to door and they were mm-hmm. getting people and i think in this case they got something like 25 or 30 26 yeah 26 people to actually sign these releases. Yeah. And so the plaintiff's lawyers come into court and they have a motion to invalidate all of the releases. And apparently the grounds are is that the releases contain misleading, coercive, inadequate information. They had pre-written checks as compensation, so it was a take it or leave it deal. Uh, it was supposed to be for past rent increases. Um, so that really wasn't necessarily compensation. And the plaintiff brings this in front of the court and the court says... 
yeah, we're going to invalidate all we're gonna 26 invalidate. of yeah. those. Because look, this stuff, the pickup stick stuff is is not necessarily improper. It's a it's a, it's a dirty underhand tactic, if you ask me, but it's not improper. I've seen it be upheld. I've seen it get struck down. So there's strict requirements. So look into that. Look at this case too. So anyway- right. but You the, owe somebody a couple thousand dollars. You can't go to them and say, I'm giving you 10 bucks. That's right. Yeah. And you can't lie to them and say things like, this lawsuit is not likely to succeed. You're better off taking this money. You can't make misrepresentations. You also, it's good practice to have a copy of the lawsuit with the purported release. Give them an opportunity to consult yeah. with independent counsel. I Absolutely. mean, you know, anything like that Absolutely. that you can do. Well, at any rate, the good people at Upside Gating did none of that. Nope, they didn't do that. And they did the, the judge up in Alameda, Brad Seligman, who is a very, very good judge, fine, fine judge, he, and I'm sure the plaintiffs in this case agree, um, actually uh, rejected this and um, said, no, none of these are binding. And so what was Upside's response to that judge's order? So Upside files an appeal. And they argue that they should be able to appeal this order because they argued that it's sort of like an injunction that required them to do something. Their argument was it's an injunction. It's an appealable injunction insofar as it requires appellants to take affirmative steps to affect invalidation of the releases by participating in the preparation of a corrective notice and providing plaintiff's counsel with the releases and contact information for the tenants who executed the same. They argue that because this order requires them to do something— it's, it's an, an injunction. injunction, which is crazy because that would make every order an injunction. Right. The court's ever issue. And in fact, the court agreed with you, Shant, or maybe it's the other way around, because the court said- <laughs> They didn't consult with me. That every order nearly requires somebody to do something. That's why it's called an order. order. Yeah. Exactly. So the order is not an injunction. The court comes out and says, look, this is not appealable. It's simply not appealable. Because the court has the right to control these class action cases, doesn't make it appealable, and then goes on to say that there's very limited ways that there can be effectively like an appeal or an interlocutory appeal during the pendency of a case, especially class action cases. One of them is called the death knell doctrine. We're going to cover yep. that in our next case. Yep. But they said this just doesn't fall into that. Yeah, it's category. something that totally kills the case or is sort of dispositive in the case. Those are the only things that are appealable in the death knell doctrine. Specifically includes, it provides a list here. An order certifying a class can't appeal it. An order partially certifying a class can't appeal it. Order compelling uh, arbitration can't appeal it. Order directing notice to class members or to get names of class order members can't appeal it. Uh, arbitration of a class action is a directly appealable. That's right. But they even go so far as to say that an order granting, uh, sustaining a demur with leave to amend is not appealable because it's not final. It's not final. That's so, right. So, I mean, great case, very simple read. It makes it very clear. What I liked about this case best of all, Sean, is that the order that they filed the appeal on came down on June 19th, 2019, June 19th, 2019. And this opinion was filed on October 17th, 2019 and published on November 18th, 2019. That's a record. That is the kind of appellate work we like seeing. That is fast a record. That justice. must be some sort of a record. That's like a death penalty appeal, like fast over there when someone's about to get the chair. Okay. In next the case. South, deep <laughs> South. <laughs> Yeah, denying no, we all, their appeal. We all think that denying you, their you son have exhausted quickly. your appeals. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, next case. Uh, this has to do with the Death Dell Doctrine, so that's a good segue. Williams versus Impacts Laboratories, Inc., and this is coming from the First Appellate District. This is another class action. This is an employment class action where the plaintiff was alleging Impacts uh, failed to pay overtime wages, meal and rest breaks, failed to pay minimum wages. So a few little problems to start with with this case. Yeah. Apparently... Emmy Lou Williams, who's the class representative, mm-hmm. stopped working there in December of 2013, and this class action wasn't filed until almost four years later, August of 2017. That's a long time. That's a long time. And that's not just a long time. That's also a problem. Why? I don't know. Well, how could it because be a problem? Because there's something called a statute of limitations. What's that? And so, right. Well, that concerns me. <laughs> and it concerns me in so many ways. Right. Go yeah. Well, I'll no. be right back. Yeah, yeah I, I'll take a break to just make sure our malpractice policy is yeah, updated. Yeah, put them on notice. We get a Sean Karnickian writer on our policy. <laughs> so um, it's a statute of limitations for the claims, for the wage and hour type claims that are brought in this case. The PAGA claim, which has a one-year statute from um, the event or the occurrence. And since this person had worked there in four years, um, the defense brought a motion to strike. The class representative is not being adequate or representative because of the statute of limitations. And guess what the court, the trial court did? They dismissed the class claims because they can't be a class representative. However, they the, gave I, leave to amend. To add a new, add a new plaintiff, class, which is really important. A new, a new class, class rep. rep. Right. Yeah. And so they were really being given a second bite of the apple. And what did they do? Well, they waited nine months. And then what did they do? They, they found a new class rep? Nope. What they did they used, do? They used Emmy Lou all over again. What? <laughs> and they and they re. I'm playing dumb here, but they realleged the same people. Same allegations. You don't even read these cases. They realleged the same allegations. Yeah. They brought the same allegations forward, and the, the same class rep who had already been determined once before to be inadequate. And all they did was expand on the paragraph that made allegations about her adequacy as a class representative. So this is important too. Is that the original? Um, demur was sustained with leave in December of 2017. Yep. They didn't get around to um, filing or having heard the uh, the demur on the second complaint until September of 2018. And that's important because any idea of appealing that initial ruling with usually a 60-day time period to file a notice of appeal yeah. is gone. That's right. They didn't seek appeal of that first so order they, they in December of 2017. Right. They couldn't find another class representative. We don't know why. They couldn't find another class representative. And they came forward and they said they filed the same motion all over again, same result all over again, which is like, you know, what's the definition of insanity, right? They're doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. They didn't get a different result. Nope. Same result. And so they bring the appeal. And uh, the defendant moves to dismiss the appeal on grounds of lack of jurisdiction because the only order that was appealable was the December 2017 order, not the September 2018 order. Right. And they talk about the death knell doctrine, about how it's tightly defined and narrow, and it has to be an appeal from something that was dispositive in the case. And so it's not just death knell doctrine doesn't just tell you what is appealable. It also says when something has to be appealed in, in you know, this is an unusual circumstance, but you got to keep this in mind. If you... To hold otherwise, to hold contrary to what this case says, would just allow anyone that blew a deadline to appeal something to file the same exact motion and obviously get the same result. Effectively go, a okay, motion to reconsider, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's not even a motion. It's a motion to reopen the window to file an appeal. Right. Uh, it's not even something that's being reconsidered in good faith because you know what the result's going to be. So the court says, no, you can't do that. It goes over to rules for the death knell doctrine again, uh, kind of elaborates on that. 
Um, and in order to qualify as an appealable uh, order under the death knell doctrine, it must amount to a de facto final judgment for absent plaintiffs under circumstances where, two, the persistence of a viable but perhaps de minimis individual plaintiff's claims creates a risk no formal final judgment will be entered. So make no so, mistake, Sean, that you can appeal an order determining that your class representative is inadequate at the demur stage or sustaining without leave to amend a complaint at the demur stage. And um, a whole other host of ways that your case can get thrown out, your class case can get thrown out. Your case may yeah. still be alive, and that's yeah. an important issue, but it, it has to be that the de minimis nature of the individual claim is so small that it doesn't right. look practical that the case is going to continue, and then it makes it appealable under the under the death knell doctrine. So, yeah. I think so this- that happened the first time around where the court dismissed the class claims here, and that's when they should have appealed it, and they didn't. They came back with the same plaintiff, and they couldn't appeal that right and so they they this was this was a mistake i think they tried to they must have figured out that they had blown the statute or blown the deadline to file an appeal and they realized it was too late but they tried to get cute and it didn't work so that takes us to our third case today hudson and turner nope henson and turner versus fidelity can i call it hudson nope that's not what it's called you don't get to decide the name the ninth circuit court of appeals decides the name because this is where the case comes from i think melissa henson's parents decided the name that's probably true henson and keith turner and melissa henson versus fidelity national financial inc this case started out in the central district of california before judge otis wright It ended up in a very tortured procedural history that Shant and I are going to try to break down for you in less than five minutes here. I will leave it to Brian to break down the history of it. Yeah, it's... It's not a great history to, to try to follow, and I had to read this several times. It's a long opinion for the Ninth Circuit. But what it looks like happened is that the plaintiffs in this case had filed a class action against Fidelity National Financial, Inc. I got that so far, huh? Good, yeah. Pretty good. That's good. Yeah. They filed and a class action, yep. It was for RESPA violations and other violations What's related RESPA? to— RESPA is a statute that involves real estate. It involves the transaction real estate— um, settlement procedures. So, Act. like when you can take fees and stuff like that, as it relates to real estate transactions, right? And so, Fidelity National, I guess, is a, uh, an escrow company, and this particular escrow company, uh, according to the plaintiffs, had done something wrong. The um, district court judge throws everything out in this case. Which, if he had just thrown everything out, that would have been once again the death knell, and they could have gone forward with the with the class action appeal, yep. right? Even in the Ninth Circuit, same rule, but. The district court kept just a sliver of the case, just a sliver of the case alive. So one of the things we've learned today on today's podcast is that in order for the death knell to apply, all class allegations have to be gone. Whole case, whole case, everything, yeah. A partial uh, rejection of class allegations and some remaining isn't enough. And that's exactly what happened here. So the lawyers in the case on both sides said, look, you know, this is obviously an important issue. We got to take it up to the Ninth Circuit. We don't want to sit around here and screw on with one little claim. And so they enter into a clever stipulation to, to dismiss for purposes of appeal, right? Effectively to dismiss for purposes of appeal. That's right. That's right. So that goes up to um, the Ninth Circuit uh, like many, many years ago. And while the case is pending, you know, it does take a very long time in the Ninth Circuit. While the case is pending, um, a case climbs up into the uh, sites of the, of the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court, Sean, is what? Um, it's the court in uh, downtown over here. No, it's no, the it's in Washington, right D.C., pointed by the president for life, 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Go on. Name one uh, more. Uh, Anthony Scalia. Okay. Scalia. No, he's gone. Yeah. No, he left. he's not around. Yeah, okay. he left the court. Okay. Okay. So it climbs up there, and uh, on June 12, 2017, three years after the plaintiffs first um, filed their stipulated voluntary dismissal and the case got sent to the Ninth Circuit, the Supreme Court issues a decision in a case called Microsoft versus Baker. Yeah. So Microsoft versus Baker dealt with this very issue about the question of whether or not you can stipulate basically to appellate jurisdiction. Right. And over there in Microsoft versus Baker, they had a similar deal too, right? I think the plaintiff exactly. there reserved the right to revive their claims if the if the uh, appeal court agreed with them on whatever the issue was. So uh, the United States Supreme Court comes down with a decision that says you can't do that. You cannot you can't create, create appellate jurisdiction. Appellate jurisdiction, yeah. Right, you can't. Which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. But I mean, you know, I understand the practicality of it because oftentimes you are faced with sort of the same dilemma that the plaintiffs and frankly the defense were in this case, which is, you know, we knew where we're going with this case. It's going to end up in the Ninth Circuit. Why don't we just get there now? Can't do it. So it comes down. And that then leads to the next chapter in the exciting procedural history of this case, which the, a motion to dismiss is filed by Fidelity. Yeah, because Fidelity refused to case. let the case proceed, right? And instead, they wanted the whole case thrown out. At that point, yeah. they said they wanted the whole thing thrown out. And instead, um, the uh, Ninth Circuit sends the case back to the district court for consideration of whether or not any portion of the case is still alive and can proceed in light of the procedural history here. And then guess what the district court did? What did they do? Well, the first thing they did was, and very good lawyering here, obviously, on both sides. Um, the plaintiffs brought up a case called Phelps versus Almeida. Okay, another Ninth Circuit case. It was a habeas case, but it dealt with the very question of when new law comes along or changes the law come along, which changed the course of your case is your case allowed to proceed back in the district court from from the Ninth Circuit or from the circuit? It's court? a way of seeking relief from a judgment uh, dismissing a case. Right, this torture. It's like a motion for reconsideration, sort of, right? Well, I guess. I mean, it really says, it's really fun based on fundamental fairness. The, and it's the Phelps factors. The Phelps factors, not Michael right. Phelps. It's the Phelps factors. Right. And the Phelps factors are, is it fair to allow the party to kind of go back to where they were before? Right. And so the Ninth Circuit, in this case and in Phelps, cites a number of different factors that we're going to look at to go through this. So, But before we get to that, the last chapter of the tortured history is that the district court says, Phelps doesn't weigh in your favor, plaintiffs. Bye-bye, your case Bye-bye, because you dismissed bye-bye. it. You agreed to a judgment of dismissal. Right. And then the case ends up in the Ninth Circuit. Now, a, a second time in the Ninth Circuit... This time on the question of whether the Phelps factor should be evaluated. Right, whether they can revive that one claim that hadn't been thrown out. By first the thing the Ninth Circuit says is yes, even though it's a habeas case, we think we should be able to consider Phelps factors in determining whether you'd be given a second chance, a mulligan, right? right? And so then we go through the Phelps factor. Sean, tell us, because people at this point are sick of hearing my voice, tell us about the Phelps sure. factors. Sure, the first one is change in the law. There has to be an actual change in the law. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's kind of like a motion for reconsideration. That's why that came to mind. But there has to be some sort of a change in the law that now weighs in favor uh, of, for fairness, uh, giving you the relief that you want, reviving your case or whatever. Throwing and out and, and it also has to be that it's it's a surprise to you. So the argument and the argument here is that that Microsoft case was a change in the law. 
Case, apparently, the case hadn't even been uh, a petition for certiorari hadn't even been filed at the time that the they they entered into their stipulation, stipulation right. exactly. So that weighs in favor of uh, the plaintiff here. Uh, next factor: plaintiff's diligence in pursuing relief. This one's not as important, but you know, did they do something about it? And, and here, yeah, clearly they they've appealed it and they're trying to get relief from it. Right. What's the next one? Uh, next one is reliance interest in the finality of the case. What's the interest in having this whole thing decided and uh, once and for all? Yeah. And I, I think that weighs in, in favor of plaintiff here again. Um, and then next is delay between the judgment and the Rule 60B motion. Rule now, 60B this motion one I like, thought was interesting because um, clearly it was in their favor, in the plaintiff's favor in this case. And the court said – um, not only did the plaintiffs move for relief shortly after the Ninth Circuit decision came out, sending it back, but um, there was never finality. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then the next factor is relationship between the original judgment and the change in the law. And I, I think over here, it, it, this also weighs in favor of the plaintiffs because you know they relied upon the law. And the lack of that Microsoft ruling in coming to that decision uh, to enter into that stipulation. And then that case came down and kind of screwed them. And then the final factor is concerns of comedy. I love comedy. No, it's not that kind of comedy. It's not stand-up comedy. I love comedy. It's not stand-up. It's my favorite clause clause in the entire United States uh, Constitution. We should start an improv group called, like, I I don't know. Lawyers and and comedy? Stand-up comedy, but C-O-M-I-T-Y. So what is comedy one for someone that, 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 that Saturday Night Live? That's comedy. No, no. C O M I T Y. It's a provision in the United States Constitution. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that that requires consistency between different districts and and things like that. So and that also weighed in favor of uh, plaintiff here. So right. what, what ultimately happens? Well, well, ultimately, they they say there's a final factor, which is let's look at all the considerations. So it's a mm-hmm. balancing test, in my opinion. And the Ninth Circuit pass comes back and say, look, this is this would be fundamentally unfair. Uh, the district court exceeded its um, it's really its jurisdiction. It went beyond uh, what it should have done here, and the case should be allowed to proceed. So it was allowed to proceed. Interesting case, right? Good, good outcome issue. for the plaintiff. Uh, interesting issue. Kind of nerdy procedural stuff, but that's that's interesting. We're nerds, so you know we're not. Very if you're cool. listening to this podcast, chances are so are you. Well, well, what if they're listening to make fun of us? God, good for them. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. Last thing we're going to consider today is something we have, and we'll try to do this a little bit more often. Is some of the um, some of the legislation that's been enacted in 2019, and there's been a lot. That's right. And uh, consumer attorneys of California had, I believe, nine bills that they sponsored that were signed into law. This is one of them. It was AB uh, nine, um, and uh, it's it. it involves- it's called Share S H A R E Stop Harassment and Reporting Extension Act. Is that like Cher. the performer, like Sonny Ann? Sonny and Cher, Cher Sarkeesian, who's, so, who's actually Armenian. Right, yeah. right, half Armenian like me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so only, only half. What is uh, <laughs> What is this? Tell us about the statute. So, that goes into effect um, January 1st, 2020. Yeah, it changes the timing of FIHA. Well, FIHA is the Fair Employment and Housing Act. That's the statute that gives someone a right of, a right of action for discrimination claims. It doesn't just have to do with housing, but it also has been expanded into the employment context. And currently, in 2019, and prior to this statute being enacted, you have 
one year from the alleged act to file a complaint with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, the DFEH. So you have a year to file a DFEH complaint, and then you can ask that the DFEH issue a right to sue letter, and you need a right to sue letter in order to sue. Or you can ask them to investigate, which will take years, and because it's the government doing it, it'll probably not get done. It's like having the DMV do something, do something like this. So anyway, but once they're done with their investigation, or immediately after they issued a right to sue letter, you have one year to file the lawsuit. So conceivably, under the old framework, an employee would have two years maximum to bring a claim, two years from the alleged conduct. This statute, though, extends the time to file that complaint to three years. So you, but only for employment discrimination. That's right. Not for other things that fall under uh, under the jurisdiction of the um, Fair Employment and Housing yeah. Act. Yeah. Right. But it's only for in, in employment discrimination. Yeah. So it extends that to three years. And then conceivably, since you have one year after the right to sue letter is issued after you file your complaint, you get uh, three uh, – you get another year to file your lawsuit. So conceivably, it can be four or more uh, – you know, it could be four years until uh, right. you bring so your Right. So what the lawsuit. real important point is that you've got to file this FIHA um, uh, letter or complaint, and they, they go so far as to say, look, a complaint is just an intake form, so it's no formality. You have three years now to file your your intake form with the department, right? Yeah. And then after the uh, right to sue letter comes out, you have another year to file your lawsuit. So presumably yeah. at that point, you're lawyered up. You know what you've got. You've got plenty of time, and that's really what this is supposed to, um, supposed to do. Interesting, though, Sean, it's not a revival statute. Which means that if your, if your time claim is has lapsed, already it's lapsed, lapsed yeah. it's gone, it's yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, and, and one interesting thing, when I was kind of looking into this uh, Assembly Bill 9, the SHARE Act, I found when, when you just even Google it, the first page or two of results that you get are, are all these different blogs like the California Workplace Law Blog or Employment Law Blog. And like that's all these blogs. It's like, oh, so interesting. There's so many people writing about AB9. And you go there and you start reading and you go, this isn't really it's a all very favorable employer, tone. corporate based. Yep. There is a huge community out there today. That is opposed to these changes to the employment yep. law uh, and law firms who are soliciting business because they know that their their employers, are, their clients are going to get sued more. Yeah, and they and they kind of they try to make it sound like it's an objective analysis of this law that came out, but if you read the context, it's very it's very condescending. You know, the one that I was reading in particular said that this was purportedly designed to protect Me Too, and they and they uh, then they talk about how Jerry Brown vetoed it and and how this is going to create more problems in California, and California already has very uh, unfavorable laws for employers, and, and they try to create this panic about it. So, Interesting. look, they're on top of this. They are uh, the the Defense bar is keeping up with all of these changes. I mean, look, I'm glad that they're, it's getting a lot of attention because you know if they're barking about it, you know that we're doing something right on our end of the bar. But you know, keep in mind that they're on top of it. They're on top of these laws. They're dissecting it. They know what they're doing, and they'll challenge these statutes, and, and they'll fight you. So one last thing about this, though, that is it's AB9 from the uh, 2019 session, yep. but it's also Government Code Section 12960 and 12965 if you're actually looking for the text. Yeah, that's all we got for you. We'll be back again soon, we unless will? we get canceled. Oh boy, we can't get canceled. Even though I kind of wish we could, we cannot get canceled. Why do you wish we get canceled? I don't know. Less work for me.
That's Less probably because I'm lazy. That's probably it's because I'm lazy, well, and, and I don't have to tell you that. Well, but thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. This is ad free, but we'll plug ourselves. But really, we like doing this, and we like hearing your feedback. So subscribe to this podcast, rate us, uh, reach out to us with any questions or feedback if you want to run something by us. We're always looking to make new friends, especially Brian. He needs more friends. So thank you for tuning in, and see you next time.